So we are reading from Ecclesiastes 5, and it's the first seven verses. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they, they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. We're on, we're on. Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. Um, we're continuing our series called Living Life Backwards, um, which is this study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and you might wonder, why is it called Living Life Backwards? Well, it's called Living Life Backwards because in the book of Ecclesiastes, we examine different areas of life. But instead of like young people like me, just, I'm 34 tomorrow, so I'll call myself young. Um, instead of young people like us doing things and then thinking about the consequences, what Ecclesiastes does is he looks at the consequences first in all these different areas of life. Things that we just accept as normal, work, relationships, money, time, life, death. But I want to start this morning in chapter 5, the first seven verses, by thinking about critics, right? What's the point of critics? Is there any point? Everyone's a critic, right? We all are. What purpose do critics serve? You maybe heard the phrase that critics are just failed artists. You're not like friends when Joey gets really bad reviews in the play and they're just like, ah, oh, they're just failed actors. And then they're like, what are you going to do now? And he's like, become a critic. But is that really true? Are critics, are critics just field artists? See, when we think of criticism, we, always, we almost always think of something to be avoided, don't we? We think, ah, I need to stay away from criticism. Don't, don't criticize me. But yet our lives are full of critics. We have film critics, food critics, music critics, political analysts, football pundits, who I watched about 12 hours of yesterday. It was great. Love the World Cup. Uh, one of my favorite uh, radio shows, it's almost a podcast, it's on Five Live. It's the uh, Kermode and Mayo film review. Does anyone know this show? It's, yeah, it's really good. Best like, yeah, it's great. Mark Kermode, he loves Belfast. He loves the Aragal, so he's a good man in my book. Um, but he just like takes apart these films and he examines them and he examines the lighting, the, the sound, uh, maybe the actors' performances, the directors. He breaks these things down. It's really, really interesting. So I would have a really hard time going to Mark Kermode and saying, I mean, in the off chance that he might listen to this recording, I'm sorry if I'm offending you, Mark. Um, I don't think he'll listen to Sermons from Village, but you never know. Um, I would have a hard time going to him and saying, you're just a failed artist. Because the guy studied for years and continues to study so that he can take apart a piece of art in a really helpful and constructive way. So, Critics do serve a legitimate purpose, don't they? They can tell us to, to 
go and try that new restaurant or not. They can tell us to buy that new book or to trust that news source or not. Or they can tell you to whether or not you should spend your only date night in three months going to see the rock fight giant animals. <laughs> they were right. We should have listened. But there you go. I mean, it's still the rock, so it's not that bad. Um, I just spent the whole time looking at his muscles, so it was good. Um, but what happens when the critics turn their attention to us, right? What happens when the critics turn their attention to you? What happens when the critics turn their attention to the different aspects of your life? We're talking about Father's Day today. You don't think I haven't been thinking this week about how I parent my children? What happens when the critic turns his eye to what you do with your money? Or how you treat your parents? Or how you are with your friends? Or how you serve your neighbors? Or in the case of Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7, how you worship? And that's exactly what's going on in this passage this morning. Last, last week, John showed us how Ecclesiastes introduced us to this character called the preacher or the teacher. In Hebrew, it's Kohelet. It's someone who gathers together for the purposes of teaching wisdom. And he, he, he's casting this critical eye over all aspects of life. And in these seven verses, he casts his eye to how the people of God worship. And when he looks at it, he's distressed. What, what causes him to be so distressed? What, what's so bad in the way that the people worship him that causes him to say, God has no pleasure in fools? What's so bad about the way that people are worshiping that when he looks at it, he calls them fools? He said, you're offering the sacrifices of fools. And I would offer that he's talking about empty worship. He's talking about worship without spirit and truth. He's talking about ritual without meaning. He's talking about religion without heart. And when he observes their worship, he says that it's meaningless. He sees vanity. He sees hevel. Now, if you haven't been part of this series before, let me explain. I Hopefully, for all you who are here every week, you're starting to get an idea of what hevel is. Hevel is this word that in us, in, in English, it's translated as vanity. The Hebrew word is hevel. And it has two sides to it, right? It has, it, it's, it's something that is temporary and fleeting. And it's something that uh, is an enigma, is a paradox. So it's like, remember, we, we lit the match and it's like the smoke. It literally means vapor. It looks like it has structure. But when you try to grab it, it's gone. And Kohelet, the teacher, he sees vanity in all these aspects of life. He sees it in the way that we pursue our work, the way that we pursue our pleasure, the way that we pursue our relationships. And he says they're all meaningless. They're all like a vapor that will vanish away. And here he says, hevel in worship. He sees hevel. He sees meaningless. He sees things that, is, things that are fleeting in worship. And you see, the teacher here is talking about an approach to what we call corporate worship, and that just, that's just a fancy way of saying when we gather together like this to worship God, when he sees in the, the, the gathering together of worship in the people of Israel, he sees worship that involves no real effort. And my challenge is this, and it's a challenge for me, it's possible to be in a worship gathering like this as someone who calls yourself a Christian, who's someone who has a meaningful relationship with Jesus. It's possible to be in a worshipful gathering a worship gathering like this and have no meaningful engagement with God 
And the Bible says it's meaningless. The Bible says it's vanity. Do you ever feel like you, you come to church and you're just going through the motions? I do. You're going through the motions. You come in, you put on a big smile, and you say, oh, yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. How are you doing? You come in, grab a coffee, sit down, stand up for the songs, sing along, maybe even put your hand up just at the right line when you know it's powerful. You sit and nod along to the sermon. Oh, yeah, that's good. Come on, Rev. Where is he? Come on, Rev. <laughs> for our American friend now. You sing all the songs. You listen to the sermon. You come up for communion. You hear the words. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ spilled for you. And it does nothing. You're just going through the motions. And then you walk out the door like nothing ever happened. Have you ever felt like that? I have. I have way too often. And the teacher sees this in his people. The chosen people of God are worshiping like this, and this is how he addresses it. Keep your Bibles open at Ecclesiastes 5, because we're going to be dipping in and out. Well, we're going to be just dipping in, quite frankly. <laughs> Look at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In all of chapter 4, that John taught us last week, in all of chapter 4, the teacher doesn't mention God once. Not once is the word God mentioned in there. And then the start of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In fact, in these seven verses, God is mentioned seven times. So what does that tell us? It tells us that in this section, he's trying to tell us something explicitly about God. He's trying to tell us something about who God is, and in particular, how we relate to God because of who he is. He mentions God seven times in seven verses. And listen, Solomon wrote this, and Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus, and so we know that he structured it in this way. It wasn't a mistake. It's no coincidence that there's an absence of God and then an absolute saturation of God straight after it. And look at how this wee section of seven verses is structured. It's bookended with these two commands, and then in between, there's kind of some guiding and explaining principles, and that's how we're going to view it this morning. We've already seen the first command in verse 1. Guard your steps when you, go come to, when you go to the house of God. And look how he closes this section in verse 8. Sorry, verse 7. But God is the one you must fear. In the NIV, it says, therefore, fear God. And these two commands frame everything in between. So let's look at them. What is the house of God? What is the house of God? Well, in the Old Testament here, the house of God is, constantly, is constantly referred to as the meeting place. It's the meeting place. It's, it's, it's not a meeting place in the same way as the market is a meeting place. It's a meeting place in that it's the place where the people come to meet and commune with the living God, Yahweh. In Ecclesiastes, remember, Solomon's writing this, and Solomon was the one who oversaw the building of the temple. And so here, it's a reference to the temple in Jerusalem where the people gathered together to offer sacrifices and come and gather together for worship. It was the focal point of worship. Now, the temple was necessary back in those days because God was inaccessible to fallen people. Why? Well, God's holy and he can't be around sin. Not because... It would do something to him, 
but because his holiness is so brilliant that if we were to approach him in sin, then we would just be consumed by his holiness. His holiness destroys sin. It's like flying a spaceship into the sun. It would just disintegrate. And so the temple existed as a place where the presence of God existed and the people could prepare themselves in certain ways and purify themselves in certain ways so that they could come to the temple, offer their sacrifices, make their vows, and worship God together. Verse 1, sacrifices had to be made. Verse 2, words had to be uttered. Verse 3, vows had to be made. And it's this idea of God's holiness, which is why we see this in God giving Moses instructions in Leviticus 15 for the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was just like a temporary temple. It was like the, the temporary temple in tent form. It was the tent. Of, it was the meeting place. And this is what God says. He says, Moses, keep the people of Israel separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place. It's serious business. When you come to worship God, it's serious business. This is why Solomon says, when you go to the place of worship, the place where the very presence of God dwells, guard your steps. Be careful how you approach God. It's not just a social club. When, and when we gather together like this, it's not the same as gathering together uh, for dinner or getting together for a party or going for a coffee or going to the pub or whatever you want to do. It's not the same. It's different. Remember, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush. Read it in Exodus chapter 3. It's this fascinating story, right? And God appears to Moses in a burning bush, in a bush that's on fire but isn't being consumed. And this is what he says to Moses. He says, Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. Now, I'm not saying that that's comparable to us. I'm not saying that this building is holy. I'm not saying that this building that we meet in is the temple, the only place that the presence of God dwells. But here's my point. When God decided to meet Moses in that place, before that, it was just any old piece of desert, right? It was just, it was just a place where there was a wee bush in the desert. But when God decided to show up and meet with Moses in that place, it became holy ground. And when we meet together to commune with the everlasting God Almighty, same as the Old Testament God, he's never changing, he's promised us his presence. And so this becomes a sacred time together. And we'll go into more of that later. So what Solomon is saying to the people and what he's saying to us Christians through Jesus this morning is, when you gather together for worship, remember that you're coming into the very presence of the Holy Lord God Almighty. So come carefully, come ready to meet with him, and come in awe of him. That's the first command. The second command in verse 7. Fear God. Therefore, fear God. What does it mean to fear God? Man, I was wrestling with this this week. Me and John were talking about loads. And I came to the conclusion that fear God just means fear God. <laughs> it literally means what it, what it says. In one sense, it's exactly that. It's to have fear of this awesome thing. God is awesome in his power and his might and in his judgment. And then you have stories in Leviticus 10. The story of uh, these two priests. They're actually sons of Aaron. They're called Nadab and Abihu. Nobody's, nobody's like looking for biblical names. No one's going, I'm going to call my boy uh, Abihu. Why do you not do that? There's no like, 
Nadabs. Oh, Nadab, that's like, don't dab, no dabbing here. <laughs> Nadabs. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I just shouldn't say the things that come into my head. <laughs> Stick to the script. But the sons of Aaron, this is what it says in Leviticus, Leviticus 10. These are priests, by the way. These are the very sons of Aaron. They're the, the people who are given to the people. They're the guys who are given to the people of Israel to, to help them meet with God. And this is what happens. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Listen, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. What? And you might say, aye, hold on a minute. That's the Old Testament. We're, we're, we're not like that. Jesus is different than that. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is New Testament. Really? Is that what you think? You think that somehow Jesus is different to this God that consumes people with his holiness because they're, they're impure and unclean? Remember what Lucas taught us a couple of weeks ago, Revelation 19, when we see Jesus coming to judge the world? He's coming, he's riding on a horse, he's got a robe dipped in blood, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth with which he will strike down the nations. And the, the, the passage says, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. That's Jesus. That's New Testament. That's New Covenant. Or what about Ananias and Sapphira? Should be kind of still fresh in your minds from when we did the marathon season through Acts. Acts chapter 5. If you don't know the story, let me recap quickly. One of the practices of the early church and something that we should practice too is they would sell, they would, they would sell their possessions and give money uh, to the church so that it could be distributed equally and distributed to those in need. And so uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they're a, they're a married couple, and, and they, uh, the, the actual words used are, uh, they lied to the Holy Spirit. Because what they did was they sold their property and then kept some of it back and then said, oh yeah, this is all we have. Aren't we so holy? Look at us, giving all that we have to the church. And they lied. And you know what happened? They dropped down dead. This is what the passage says in Acts chapter 5. It says, Immediately she, Sapphira, fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Remember, this is New Testament. This, is the, this church is exactly the same post-Pentecost. We have the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit. We're exactly the same as these guys. And listen what it says. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the New Testament. And as Christians, we should have fear of offending the one that we love and the one that we say that we worship. Not because we're afraid of dropping down dead, not because we're afraid of, 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 of his punishment or his judgment, but because we're afraid of displeasing the one who is our salvation. We're afraid of displeasing the one who gives us life, the one who has caused us to be born again, the one who is our king. God never changes, and he's still the God who's described as holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And we need to come before him in reverence and in awe. Guard your steps. Fear God. These aren't two mutually exclusive commands. It's not like they just exist separately to each other. 
They're actually very re related, and they work together to, to help us understand what Solomon's trying to says, say. And when he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, he's saying, this is the posture you will take when you come to worship God because you fear him. If you fear God, you will guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Well, if you fear God, you're going to guard your steps. You're going to come in awe, in awe and reverence before him. And when he says, fear God, he's saying, this is what will cause you to guard your steps. Therefore, fear God. All of this stuff that comes, comes before him, we're going to unpack it now. He's saying, all of that should cause you to fear God and be in awe of him. But I want to stop for a second and, and see if we can't figure out how, how this 3,000-year-old text relates to us in 2018. Maybe it's obvious to you, but I just want to point this out. We live in the most secularized time in history. In fact, uh, one writer who I've been enjoying recently said, we don't live, uh, we don't have secular aspects to our society. We are a secular society. And we're part of a society where work and pleasure are the gods that we worship. So no one says that we worship anything. Of course we don't worship. We're, we're too smart to worship anything. We don't believe in gods and fairy stories. But everyone does worship something, right? <laughs> I'll give you some examples. Uh, in a recent survey uh, done by uh, The Guardian, obviously reliable. Um, <laughs> it's a joke. Uh, I hope that's reliable. Over 50% of employees across the board, not just in high-powered banking jobs, across the board, over 50% of employees say that they check their work emails before they get out of bed in the morning. That's worship. A few years ago, there was an intern in the banking sector. He worked for a, he worked for a big bank in London, and he dropped dead uh, of... I can't remember what it was. It was uh, basically exhaustion. He dropped dead after working 72 hours straight without sleep, without a break. And he was an intern. We worship work, right? And what about pleasure? Uh, do you know, that, do you know one, of the, one of the industries that didn't kind of go downhill during the, the financial crash of 2008 and then the years after that was the restaurant industry? The... the the average household in the UK spends 45 pounds a week on restaurants and eating out. 45 pounds a week? I need to get one of them jobs. We spend 32 billion, 32 billion with a B, a year on going on foreign holidays. Work and pleasure are the gods of our society. And, and don't fall into the trap that just because we're Christians, just because you're saved, and just because you're part of the church, it doesn't affect you, because it does. Because what are the things that you chase after? I need to get more money, or I don't have enough money. I'm worried about the income. Where are we go? How are we going to afford uh, new clothes? How are we going to afford to go on holiday? As Christians, we're, we're often just as secular as those that, we, those that live around us in the world. And it's this observation that uh, Leyland Riken, he's, a, he, he's an American um, theologian, and he was writing into this context, and he, this is what he says about the church. Listen to this. I want you to grasp this. We worship our work. We work at our play. 
and we play in our worship. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play in our worship. That sounds familiar to me. Is it true of you this morning? Is worshiping the living God kind of your last priority? When you come to a gathering like this, are you mindful that you're gathering together to meet the living God? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this again. You're like, come on now, that's Old Testament again. You're trying to do this thing again. That's Old Covenant. We don't have the temple. We don't have sacrifices. So how can we offer the sacrifice of fools? We're in the new covenant. You need to chill out, go on holiday or something. Well, I do need to go on holiday. And I'm going to soon. But let me tell you about the new covenant. You're right. We don't have a temple. We don't have a centralized meeting place. There's not just one place on earth where, where God's presence dwells. But in the new covenant, we are the temple. What? Read your Bible. Ephesians. Ephesians says that we are being, and we're going to look at this again later on, we're being built up into the dwelling place of God. And when we gather together in the name of Jesus for the purpose of worshiping him, we're meeting with the same God as the Bible describes as a consuming fire. God doesn't change. There is no Old Testament God and New Testament God. And if anyone tells you that, they're mistaken or lying. And tell them to come and talk to me. Uh, I was, I've, been, I've been following the teaching of a pastor in America called Art Azurdia. He's, uh, he's a funny guy, but he's just a brilliant mind, brilliant teacher. And he says this, No amount of emphasis on grace can justify taking liberties with God in corporate worship. What does that mean? It means that we emphasize grace so much but we still need to remember that we're worshiping the holy God who is a consuming fire. In other words, as much as in Jesus we Christians can confidently enter the throne room, we need to remember that we're still entering the throne room of heaven. As much as we have the freedom to walk in there, we need to remember where we're walking into. It's not something to be taken for granted. It's not something uh, to be taken liberties with. It's not something to do flippantly. Just because we have the keys to the kingdom doesn't mean that we shouldn't fall to our knees in awe of the one who gave us the keys. You with me? Guard your steps. Fear God. That wasn't a rhetorical question. Are you with me? Still nothing. You guys. So that's what, the, that's what the teacher in Ecclesiastes says about our posture when we come to worship. We should fear God. We should, we should um, guard our steps. But what does he say about the content of our worship? I want you to notice two themes in the 20 minutes we have remaining. Two themes in these verses. Words and speaking and making voice. Look at the text. He starts in verse 1 by saying, to draw near to listen is to better is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Verse two, be not rash with your mouth. I'm always rash with my mouth. Don't be hasty to utter a word before God. Verse three, a fool's voice comes with many words. Verse six, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Why should God be angry at your voice? Verse seven, when words grow many, there is vanity, hevel. How can worship be hevel? How can worship be vanity? Well, I mean, we're worshiping God for crying out loud. How can it be vain? 
Well, the teacher says, and this is what he observes, he observes people coming into the temple, right? And they're gathering for corporate worship. Not too, dis- I mean, less blood and sacrifices, yes, but, but they're not too dissimilar to this. And they're praying these long, wordy prayers. Their, their emphasis on their words. But the problem isn't with the act of praying itself. The problem is with the heart behind the praying. The teacher calls it, in verse 1, the sacrifice of fools. And apparently, it's the opposite of listening to God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So how do we not offer the sacrifice of fools? We listen to God. Lucas already mentioned. He mentioned like a ton of stuff in my sermon, so that's how I know I'm on the right track. Um, he mentioned that this command, this, this, this thing in the Old Testament that is called the Shema. It's the command. And it's not, speak, O Israel. Repeatedly the command is, hear, O Israel. The people of God would listen to the voice of God and allow that to guide their lives. Sound familiar? Listen to what Jesus said. In Matthew 6, he said, when you pray, don't heap up empty words. In other words, don't ramble on like the heathens do. Literally, it's don't babble as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Wow. Now, if our Father knows what we need before we ask Him, then is it better to tell Him what we need or better to listen to, let, to, to what he says we need. Last, week, uh, last weekend, Haley was away, and uh, I asked Finney what he wanted for lunch or dinner, I can't remember. Um, and he knew it was a, like half a packet of Haribo's up in the cupboard, so he said, I want sweets, obviously. But me as his dad, I knew he needed some kind of nutrition and not just Haribo's. Um, and don't worry, I did make him proper food. It was probably chicken nuggets, to be honest. So not that much better than voice in hindsight. But the principle remains. He needs a nutritious meal. But if he had just somehow been able to listen to his voice and follow his voice and follow his ideas, he'd be eating Haribo for dinner every meal. But here's the point. Me as his father, I know what he needs more than he knows what he needs. So he has to listen to my voice and obey that voice in order to receive the best possible for him, what is most good for him. And this is what the teacher says in verse 2, isn't it? He says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you're on earth. I love that. I love that he's like, just remember, guys, God's in heaven, and you're on earth, okay? God's God, and you're you. Let your words be few. God is in heaven. You're on earth. And what does that mean? It means that anything he has to say to you will be infinitely better than anything you can say to him. It means that it's more important to listen than it is to speak. He's the one that has the words of eternal life, not us. So we worship him. We approach worship by guarding our steps. We come with a desire to hear God's word. God's voice speaking to us. Now, I need to stop here for a second and say, please don't hear me. Or please do hear me. Please hear me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't sing songs of praise and worship. I'm not saying that we shouldn't recite liturgy and worship to God. In fact, the Bible over and over and over and over and over again tells us to do that. 
But we should approach even those things with the posture that we want to hear from God. I mean, Thomas was leading us so well this morning. He was in the in-between bits in the songs. He's, he's asking the Lord to speak to us as we're speaking to him. We come to worship with a posture of listening. Because anything he says to us is infinitely better than anything we can say to him. And we're going to look at, hopefully just blow your mind at the end with more on that stuff. That wasn't like me saying, I hope I blow your mind. It was like, I hope the Lord blows your mind. I can't do that. Listen, if our worship is based more on what we say to God rather than what he says to us, says, says to us our worship becomes what? Hevel. Our worship becomes meaningless. Our worship becomes, has no structure. It can't be grasped. Our worship becomes something that's temporary and doesn't last. It's got no substance. And this is why we spend most of our time when we gather together for worship like this, it's when we spend most of our time listening, reading and listening to God's word. Because there's no greater act of worship than, than, than to listen and obey God's word. And when we do that, when you're listening to a sermon, you're not just getting a few handy tips on how to live for the next seven days till you're back here again. You're submitting yourself to what God is saying to us in this moment. And so when we listen to the Word of God, we're submitting ourselves to the Word of God so that we can obey the commands of God in order that we might bring glory to God. You see how that works? We listen, we obey we bring glory. What about all this chat about vows? There's a lot of stuff about vows in here. I think he mentions vows like seven times. Read verse four and five. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. What's going on here? Well, have you, ever, uh, been in a, have you ever been in a tough situation and you've done something like this? You've gone, Lord, see if, you, see if you just get me out of this. Like, I swear I'll come to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. Have you ever done stuff like that? Or like, Lord, see if you get me past this exam. I promise I'm going to revise for the rest of them. <laughs> or whatever it might be. Well, there's actually, there's, actually a, there's actually a principle in the Israelite culture back here that was kind of similar to that. Although less frivolous. It was common to um, make a vow to the Lord for a particular request, right? So there's something you really need help with. There's something you need God to do. So you say, Lord, um, I'm praying about this. And to show you I'm serious, I'm going to give all this money to the the temple or I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. So we already saw Hannah, right, this morning. First Samuel. First Samuel chapter one, actually. Hannah is baby Samuel's mother. And Hannah didn't have any kids. And Hannah couldn't have kids. And in those days, that was a great shame upon her. And so she goes to the temple and she's praying and she vows a vow to the Lord. And she says, Lord, remember me in my affliction and give me a son. And I will give him to the Lord to serve all the days of his life. And so the Lord says, okay, Hannah, here's your baby. Here's baby Samuel. 
Baby Samuel comes along, and when he's old enough, she takes him to the temple and fulfills her vow by holding up her end of the bargain and says, thank you, Lord, for my son. Here he is. He's going to live in the temple and serve you for the rest of his life. And he ends up becoming a really important character in the history of Israel. And this is what the teacher's talking about in Ecclesiastes 5. He's saying, uh, he's talking about that idea of, of making vows, but he's looking at the worship and he's saying, you're doing this stuff, but you've no intention of keeping them. You're not fulfilling your vows. When it says paying your vows, that can be translated fulfilling your vows. And it disturbs him so much that he calls them fools. He says, God has no pleasure in fools. Like God doesn't know you're not going to keep your vow. And the, the issue is that they worship God when they gather together and they worship God in the temple when they come to pray, but they don't worship God in the rest of their lives. There's nothing wrong with the sacrifice. There's nothing wrong with the, with the, with the making of vows. God instituted both those things. The ritual isn't wrong. It's the heart behind the ritual there's a problem with. We saw Hannah, who's this woman who does fulfill a voice. Turn with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 7. And we're going to look at another woman. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now, this is the kind of woman that your mother warns you about, right? Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices in the day I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linen from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not home. He has gone a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. I've made my sacrifices, I've made my vows, but I've no intention of keeping them. She goes to the temple, she goes through the motions, and straight afterwards, she's out cheating on her husband. It's nothing to do with gender, guys. This is all of us. There's a massive disconnect between the worship in her life and the worship in the meeting place. Her vows are meaningless. They're hevel. They disappear as soon as they're made because she knows that she's going to go out and try and find this guy that she wants to sleep with. And Solomon calls it the sacrifice of fools. He says in verse 5, it's better you shouldn't even make these vows than you should, you should make them and with no intention of keeping them. And here I am again. Yep, you're right. Calm down. You're trying to impose these Old Testament rules onto us. We're New Testament people. We're new covenant. Okay, well, let's look at the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29. This is what it says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And everyone says, amen. Oh, this kingdom, it cannot be shaken. We have part of this. We have access to this. We have been given this thing. But let's move on. What does he say? He says, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is what? A consuming fire. Do you see what this means? This isn't Old Testament. This, isn't, this is a, a letter written to the Christian church. And what he's saying to the Christian church is there's a command to, to offer God acceptable worship. And if there's such thing as acceptable worship, then there's also such thing as unacceptable worship. 
You see, there's nothing wrong with us getting together like this and singing worship songs. There's nothing wrong with us getting together and, 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 and reading the scriptures and hearing sermons. There's nothing wrong with us taking communion week after week. There's nothing wrong with the ritual. It's the heart behind the ritual that we need to examine. What we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 as unacceptable worship is behavior in the worship gathering that has no bearing on the rest of their lives. They're saying and doing things in corporate worship and have no intention of like carrying them out in the rest of their lives. No intention. And we often reduce worship to just this, right? We often reduce worship to just this one gathering. Or even worse, we reduce it to the music. We would just worship to just the, the, the singing. But Romans 12, chapter, Romans 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see what he's saying? Acceptable worship, acceptable worship to God is a whole life offered to God. Worship is this all of life kind of thing. Worship doesn't end when you walk out them doors. At the end of the service, we don't just stop worshiping and go back to not worshiping. We don't just leave the presence of God. In fact, Paul tells us, and we really looked at this in Ephesians, that, that we are being built up to be the dwelling place of God. So if we're the dwelling place of God, how can we leave the presence of God? You see? And what we do together on a Sunday morning should spill over in the rest of our week. Man, there's n- I think so often that we come here on Sunday and we declare Jesus with our lips but we deny him with our lives. I know this is hard. I know that you're, I know nobody wants to hear this, but this is, I have to preach what's presented to me in the text. And so we should worship God with all of our lives. We should worship God as we work well for him. We should worship God as we parent well for him. We should worship God as we spend time with our friends and neighbors well for him. We should worship God as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And when we gather together on Sunday morning for worship together, it's a holy time. It's just time set apart from the rest of the week. And as we do that, it's not that this place is special. It's this time together is special because during this time, the Lord allows us to pull back the curtain into the future and see what the future holds for the people of God. When our worshipful lives will be consummated and fulfilled and will worship him in spirit and truth forever and ever and ever. Guard your steps. Fear God. How do we do these things? We have a desire to hear God's voice more than our voice. We, we, we worship him with our whole lives. Guard your steps. Fear God, draw near to listen, fulfill your vows. We're finished. But I want to ask you this question. How are you feeling at this point? Hungry? <laughs> I'm hungry. I'm, the dinner's on. Come on, hurry up. That's how I feel. But apart from your physical feeling, are you feeling guilty? Are you feeling convicted? I know I am. I've been feeling that way all week since I started to get the grips of what the, the, what the teacher's really saying in this passage. 
as I examine my own life, if I, my own hypocrisy, the way, that, the way that I go through the motions on a Sunday morning, the way that my whole life doesn't worship God, the way that I kind of compartmentalize my, my worship, the way that actually when I think about my life, my words matter to me way more than God's words matter to me. And I think if I were to stop here, I think we'd probably just all go away depressed and miserable. But, thank God we're not stopping there. There's hope for us, right? If you're a Christian this morning, you're in Christ Jesus. Christian. I don't know, I made that up. You're in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. You've been saved by grace through faith, so you're united with Christ. You and Christ are like that. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means that there is no condemnation when you just come in here and go through the motions. There's no condemnation when you come in uh, or when you leave this place and you go back and you forget to worship what Lucas was saying earlier. There's no condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus. And when God looks at you, do you know what he sees? When God looks at you in worship, do you know what he sees? He doesn't see imperfect, unacceptable, empty worship. He doesn't see the sacrifice of fools. He sees worship made perfect because you're in Christ. And if you don't believe me, listen to these words from Hebrews 2. He who sanctifies Jesus and those who are, and those who are sanctified, us, are all of one. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. What does that mean? That means that Jesus, the one who sacrificed, the one who, uh, the one who helps us to be more like him, and us, the ones who are being sanctified, we're all of one. We're united with him. And Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In fact, he stands in the midst of our congregation and he sings praises and worship to God. And so therefore, because he calls us brothers and sisters, and because he sings perfect worship to God, when God looks at our worship, he sees the perfect worship of Jesus. So you can come in here broken, you can come in here in your grief, you can come in here in your laziness, you can come in here in your false piety, you can come in here in whatever state you're in. You can come in here in your rags, you can come in here in, in, in just abject spiritual poverty because we're all the same. And the only way our worship is acceptable to God is because we're in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? I was thinking about, I know, I know the time's up, but I want to I say this. I was, I've been thinking about uh, Harry and Meghan, particularly Meghan. I can tell a few months ago, she was just a normal, well, not normal, like a kind of famous American girl. And now, she, I mean, she can just go into London, go up to Buckingham Palace and, and go into the, you know, for tea and scones with the Queen. But now, because of her union with Harry, she's in the family. Now, not only can she go into Buckingham Palace, she can sit and have a laugh with the Queen. Does the queen sit and have a laugh? I don't know. I assume she does. She can dander about the palace as she pleases, and no one's going to stop her. She has the royal resources at her disposal, and so it is for us. We are united with Christ. We can enter the throne room of heaven. We have access to the presence of God. You know the first thing that happened when Jesus died? What's the first thing that happened after Jesus died? Matthew 28 says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He was dead. And the very next thing that happened is this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
The, cur- the curtain of the temple was there to stop the unclean people coming into the, the presence of God. And as soon as Jesus died, the way into the presence of God was opened up. You hearing that? So we no longer, we don't have to come into the presence of God with fear and trembling that we'd be consumed by the holy fire. We, united with Christ, dressed in his blood, we come into the, the, the presence of God and we can delight in the holy fire. We guard our steps. We fear God out of delight in his sacrifice, his love, his majesty, his perfection. Before I pray, I just want to say this. If you're not a Christian and all this sounds weird to you, um, I just want to say that we're really glad you're here. If you're not a believer, you're so welcome. Come and speak to us. Love to grab a coffee or whatever. If you're not a Christian, the consuming fire of God, it's my duty to tell you that that's not something to be delighted. It is something to be feared. Can I just gently and lovingly remind you that if you're outside of Jesus, then you can't exist in the presence of God. And someday, someday the perfect justice of God is going to be leveled against everybody. And it's only those that are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus that will be able to withstand that day. So can I invite you to accept Jesus this morning? You don't have to leave your seat. You don't have to do anything. Just accept him where you are. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your majesty. Thank you for uh, your perfection. Thank you that you are the Lord who is holy, holy, holy. Thank you, Lord, that, that through your sacrifice, you have opened up a way that we can stand confidently in your presence. Thank you, Father, that because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of heaven. Father, as we come to the end of our time together and we take your meal, would we just remember what it cost for you to do that for us? Will we just remember that it cost your body to be broken and your blood to be shed so that we could enter the throne room of heaven? Father, thank you for your blood. Thank you that you've clothed us with your righteousness. Lord, we pray for those that don't know you yet, Lord, and we ask that you would speak to their hearts this morning. Lord, we pray that we're, we're all the same. We're all, we're all blind to our sin. Lord, we pray that you would open all of our eyes this morning to see you in all your glory and majesty. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.